This morning is September 5th, 2004, and I think this is probably the only time I've ever done this, but the title's in Greek this morning, and if you know what it means, don't say so. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that as part of the message, but it's agnosto theo. And those are both familiar words. Your mind can start thinking about what that might mean, but I don't, don't want to tell you. We're going to turn to Psalm 34 and get into the, the message this morning, which again is agnosto theo. So if you're looking for the book of Psalms, you'll turn to the middle of your Bible and you should be in it. Psalms is the largest book in the Bible. It makes it easy to find because it's right in the middle. Psalm 34 in the Thompson Chain is on page 622. Psalm 34 is one of the beautiful Psalms in the Bible for me. If you get a chance when you're uh, uninterrupted, read it from beginning to end. If this doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will. But this morning we're going to pick up in the 10th verse. Actually, we're going to pick up in Psalm 33, the 10th verse. 33 and 34 run together for me because they're the same theme. But we're going to pick up in the 10th verse of Psalm 33. It says, The Lord foils the plans of nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches over all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. It goes on to give us a... Well, I'll go ahead and tell you what he goes on to say. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance despite all its great strength. It cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope, whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. What I want you to get out of that scripture before we move into our text this morning is that the nations all have their own plans. The UN will meet. uh, The European Union will meet. Individual nations will meet. Presidents, dictators, whatever it may be with their various counselors. And they make plans. But the Lord himself has plans for specific nations. The Bible teaches us that God sees the end from the beginning. And he works things out according to his will. Now... In people's lives, there's something that always troubles them. They, as, as they're considering Christianity, they begin to wonder, well, what about those who never heard? What about those on distant islands? That's always a concern. It's a concern of every skeptic you'll ever meet. You know, in, in Buddhist China, uh, where maybe somebody's not seen a Bible, how does God hold those people accountable in the same, are you sure that there's only one way? Is the thought. When that's not a concern, another concern that happens in people's lives is they say, well, you know, when I was 13, such and such happened to me. When I was a little boy, this happened to me. Or just yesterday, I lost a good friend. There's events in their lives that happen. They say, why would God let that happen? Why would there be people on another continent that don't know God? 
Why would there be events in our lives that God allowed to happen? And these things keep people from the body of Christ. They keep them outside. And most of the time, the church really doesn't have any answers for this. And this morning, I'm, I'm not going to give you all of the answers. I just want to teach you some concepts about God. The first is, the Lord's watching all of mankind. There's not a thing on the earth that is escaping His, His notice. Every time you see a heavenly creature described in the Bible, it's got eyes all over it. And the reason is, it's trying to convey whether or not literally it has eyes is, is a question for the theologians. What that is trying to convey is that God's heavenly economy is focused on man. The Bible constantly speaks, uh, Jeremiah 29:13, lots of places of God's eyes ranging throughout the earth. And He's watching. The nations have their own purposes, but God has a purpose for each man. Uh, one of the things that we've been teaching a lot lately is on the characters, uh, the characteristics of those that serve Jesus. That we are to be undignified at times, and it's hard to do. King David danced in his underwear before an entire kingdom because he believed it was pleasing to God. Some people despised that, and we saw what happened to them. We look at the unlikely servants of God, people that were called that are not the ones you would pick. You know, I would have never picked myself to be a pastor. In 1993, I was dramatically born again. I heard Jesus speak to me audibly in my bedroom. Now, you, know, you, you have a choice today and you can decide. Either I'm insane when I say that or, or I'm telling the truth. And that's all anybody can do is offer their testimony and let other people decide. But I would have never picked myself. I was a violent young man that was fairly well absorbed in myself. I thought I was a God to myself. But the God of the universe had a plan for my life. And He was watching and He got my attention. So with that in mind, I want to tell you a story and I don't usually do this. You know, I picked on pastors for a long time that have three points and a poem. You know, you hear, you hear pastors say this and they, they'll say it like this because they don't want to tell you that they weren't a part of the story, that they read it in some book. They'll say, you know, this reminds me of a story, you know, and then they, they go into this poetic uh, thing. Well, this morning, uh, I'm probably not going to articulate this very well, but I hope to get something across to you. Our message is Agnosto Theo, and it comes from this story. A guy named Diogenes in the 3rd century A.D., okay, so we're talking about 300 years after Jesus, wrote down this work, and it's a Greek work, and it's called Lives of the Eminent Philosophers. You know, so we're talking about great men. And as he recounts this story, I think you'll start to see what I'm talking about, about God working in the events of men, searching all mankind. Nations have... Their own plans, but God has a plan for nations and for every man on the earth. There's a king, Megacles, and he was at war with the followers of somebody named Cylon. And I know who Megacles is, but I didn't know who Cylon was. So, for the sake of this illustration, we're just talking about two kingdoms at war. And what happened is, Megacles said to, to Cylon, look, I tell you what, let's make a treaty. We'll have an amnesty agreement between you and I. No reason for us to fight. You come, bring your delegates here, and we'll meet together. We'll work out all these problems. So Cylon and his followers agreed, and they showed up, and Megacles did what any good lost king would do. He killed them all. They came under the promise of amnesty, and he murdered all of them. Well, the problem with this, and this is occurring somewhere before the 6th century B.C., so 600 years before Jesus 
900 years before it's written down by Diogenes. The problem with this is a famine broke out in the land not all that long after it. You remember the Lord keeps people alive in famines, the Bible says, in Psalm 34. Psalm 91 says he'll be with you in trouble and deliver you if you call on his name. Well, there's a problem. This is in Athens, same place we're having the Olympics right now, but before there was ever a Parthenon there. That's how ancient in history we're talking about. A later generation of Athenians would build the Parthenon. So Megacles murders the followers of Cylon and a famine breaks out. Well, Athens was world-renowned for having gods. They said that adding a, a, another deity to the pantheon of gods in Athens would be like taking a single limestone and throwing it in a rock quarry. You get the idea? It's like spitting in the ocean. It's kind of futile. There's so many there already, you couldn't need any more. So when this famine broke out, they started to sacrifice to God A, B, C, all the way through hundreds of gods. They were the world's foremost collector of gods. There was not a more religious city in all of, of the Greek empire than Athens. It's where they housed all of the gods. There was an Acropolis in the hills that had little statues, minarets to gods. There were altars to gods that lined their streets everywhere. Have a god for the sun, god for the rain, god for the moon, god for... It's where we get most of our days of the week and months of the year and even some holidays that we call Christian. They can be Christian. That's beside the point. So this happens. They sacrifice all these, but to no avail. The famine is still killing people. And this famine's recorded in various places. I mean, Aristotle wrote about it. Plato wrote about it. All of the great Greek writers wrote about this time period. Now, in 600 B.C., what is going on in the Bible? Anybody remember? In 600 B.C., what's happening in the Bible? Isaiah's prophesied it. The northern kingdom's gone into captivity. Jeremiah's prophesied it. And the southern kingdom has now gone into captivity in Babylon. So the people on the earth that God gave His special revelation to via this book are captive in another kingdom because of their sin, right? So that's the time period we're in. And now in Athens, Greece, we have a famine. They've sacrificed to all of their gods and they don't know what to do, so they consult the oracles. Now, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, for some reason, astrologers, uh, magicians, oracles, all of those things are not spoken of in the sense that they have no power or can't hear anything from anywhere. It's just the contrary. The Bible speaks of two sources that you can hear from. One being the devil and the other being from God. Today we act like anybody with a Ouija board or tarot cards or anything, that that's all ridiculous, it's just a sham. It's not always. Sometimes it is a legitimate source of knowledge, it's just one that is forbidden to us because we serve a God that's above it. So they consult their oracles, right? The oracles say, hey look, there's this guy named Epimedes that is a world-renowned philosopher. And we say he's world-renowned because he solved problems for other people. He's one of the great eminent philosophers of our time. I think we should get him. They don't know what else to do, so they send off for Epimedes, and it's a problem, see, because Epimedes is a foreigner. He lives in a place called Gnosis in, on the Isle of Crete. Well, y'all know, some of us in here are from Louisiana, some from Texas, those things. It's kind of like being from different high schools, you know? You're kind of proud of your heritage. I mean, even though I'm in Texas now, I watched a Louisiana football game last night with a certain sense of, you know, wanting the home team to win because I identify with it. Well, it is hard to ask for help from foreigners. But when God wants to bring you truth, 
He almost always takes somebody who's difficult for you to receive it from because it requires you to humble yourself to hear it. This is why he took white-skinned Indo-Europeans into the darkest parts of Africa to bring them the truth. It's not because the Indo-Europeans were better. It's not because they were smarter. It's because it was hard for the Africans to hear because they looked different. By the same token, God will bring people into your life that are difficult for you to hear from. Might be why there's some kid preacher here talking to you today. Okay, He does that. That's the kind of God He is. So they send off Epimedes. He shows up. And Epimedes says, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get two herds of sheep. I want you to get black sheep and white sheep. Don't feed them. I'm going to go to bed. I'm tired from the trip. Don't feed them all night. Don't feed them all day. When we wake up in the morning, then I'll meet with you all again. So they take these sheep from the time he gets there. They don't feed them. They separate them. They all go meet in a place called Mars Hill. It's where the meeting of the Oropagus occurs. It's the great Epicurean and Stoic philosophers meeting place that would occur later in time. It's what you see in the movies when they show the philosophers sitting thinking and all. This is the place that happens. It's the center of Greek thought and learning. And most of the world was Greek. In fact, in the New Testament, you were either a Jew or you were a Greek. That's how the writers wrote it. Greek was synonymous with Gentile because the Greek kingdom under Alexander had conquered the whole world. So here we are in Athens. Epimedes is standing there outside Mars Hill. We have two groups of sheep, black and white sheep. He says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make some assumptions. You've sacrificed all of your gods, and I've never seen so many gods before. I don't know. I don't know what's causing your problem. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray to whichever god this is. And I'm going to assume that he's above your gods, because your gods haven't been able to do anything about it. And I'm going to ask him to show us that this indeed is something he can control. So he lets the sheep go. And he says, I'm going to pray that when the sheep go out, that some of them do not graze, even though they haven't been fed for 24 hours. And those that don't graze, if they lay down, wherever they lay down, we're going to sacrifice to this God that's above the other gods. And all of the Greek thinkers and philosophers listen. They said, wow, I mean... Sheep wouldn't normally do that. They've been kept up all night. I mean, the first thing they do is run out and eat. That sounds like a good plan. Not all that unlike when our hero Gideon said, Lord, if you really are speaking to me here, I'm going to lay out this, uh, this fleece here and I want it wet tomorrow morning. And it was. And he said, I want it dry. Well, Epimedes went one further. He took a whole flock of sheep. So they do this. And out of the black herd and the white herd, the choicest of rams go and lay down. While all the rest eat. The finest in each flock goes and lays down. Everybody's amazed. He says, I tell you what, here's what we're going to do then. We're going to sacrifice these to this God that's above every God because He selected them. We're going to assume that this God who's more powerful than the others will honor us if we honor Him. Not a bad thought, huh? So they sacrificed them, but they didn't know what to sacrifice them on. He said, look, build some altars. And they said, well, what do we write on these altars if we build them? We, I mean, we don't know this God. He said, well, write Agnosto Theo on them. So the people wrote Agnosto Theo on them. They sacrificed and the plague stopped. And Epimedes fades into history and nobody knows what happens after that. I mean, he goes and he writes some more things and that's it. But he's not related to Athens anymore after this. Turn with me to Acts 14. Golly, Eric, that's a long story. Why are you boring us with that? We'll see if it makes sense to you here. In Acts 14, verse 
15, we see a principle that Paul's teaching. And by the way, Paul is in the Greek part of the world at this point. And Paul's name is Saul Paulus of Tarsus. In fact, the Jews would call him Shaul. That's how they say Paul. But he's from Tarsus. Paul is a Roman citizen, part of a Greco-Roman empire who happens to also be of Jewish birth. So Paul was somewhat familiar with the Greek way of thought, because he had been raised in a Greek city. So here he is speaking to Greeks and Jews. In verse 15 of chapter 14 in Acts, says, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. This is because Paul and Barnabas have healed some people. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Even with these words, (laughs) difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to him. Paul's point here is that God has not left himself among the nations without a testimony. He has done things, whether it was bringing them rain or bringing them food or whatever it was, that gave a testimony about God to every nation on earth. What are nations made of? I mean, you can't have a nation of one person, can you? No, nations are made of people. So if he's not left himself without testimony to all of the nations, to every individual in some way, he's testified about himself. In fact, the Bible says that the creation itself pours forth speech both day and night, which is understood in every language. God testifies about Himself. Flip over to Acts 17. We'll get to the point. In Acts 17, Paul shows up in Athens. Now, Paul is in the first century A.D. This is some 600 years after the events of Epimedes. 600 years after the events of Epimedes. The Jewish nation has also come out of of the Babylonian exile. They've rebuilt a temple under Zerubbabel. Ezra and Nehemiah and most of the minor prophets have taken place. We've had the 400 years of silence between the Testaments where the Maccabees reigned. A man named Jesus has come and shaken the earth and won for himself some followers like Paul. And Paul shows up in Athens. And here's what Paul does in Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Why would that be strange in Athens to advocate foreign gods? The city is already full of gods, right? They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. I'm going to digress for just a minute and I promise I'll sew up these loose ends. Paul was preaching the good news or the story of Jesus And not just Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection. I want you to remember something, and we teach this constantly, and I'm just going to go over it in brief here. The Bible is not just the story of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. The Bible is the story of death entering mankind through Adam, being a problem for all men, and God appointing one man, Jesus. 
pouring himself into that man to the extent that he was called God, he laid down his life and picked it up again to prove he had the power to free all men from death. That's what the Bible's about. So when he's preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, what he's telling people is there is a man named Jesus who has power over death, which all men are afflicted by. And in Jesus, all men can be liberated from the power of death. That's a little different than the Sunday school message that you may have heard for years. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. To an unknown God in Greek reads agnosto theo. So, well, why on earth did we go through all this? God, 600 years prior to a Jewish apostle named Paul entering Athens, had allowed a famine to come upon a land. That famine caused the people to cry out to their gods and receive no help. So then they began to look for another solution, seeing that their gods, their idols, were useless. Now, who would you think God would send to these people? In their generation, who would go? You would think that it would be somebody from the special revelation group, the Jews. Or is there a Christian? Oh, there's no Christians yet. It's before the cross. So who were God's chosen people? The Jews. The problem is the Jews were tied up in Babylon because of their sin. So there was nobody in God's chosen group of people that could go and bring the truth to them. It took 600 years for a Jewish apostle to be walking through the city and go, wow, that says to an unknown God. Growing up in a Greek environment, he knew that what it said. And he knew the story. He remembered Epimedes. And so he uses this as a focal point to begin to speak to the Athenians. I want to proclaim to you what you worship as unknown as the God that I know. He's the God that is above all of your gods. The God that, as Psalm 34 said, can keep you alive in famine and is watching all mankind. That's where Paul started. Now, there's, there's some problems, though. Why didn't somebody go in the previous 600 years? You know... He said, well, the Jewish nation were not sent to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's not true. Isaiah said they failed in their message, in their mission. They were supposed to bring it. You see a guy named Jonah one time getting on a boat to avoid his calling to go to Nineveh, an Assyrian city outside of Israel. He didn't want to do it, but God sent him because he cared about the city. So where were all of the God's chosen people? Well, they were wrapped up in bondage because they had not been obedient. To God's Word. See, there are people out there dying daily while we play church in the huddle. Wrapped up in our own little bondages. Whether it be to fear. That we're scared to tell people about Jesus. We're scared to act like Jesus is real. Whether it be to finances or debt or whatever it is. I can't go over there. I can't afford to go. Because I bought that big bass boat. Or whatever it may be. While the church of God is caught up in bondage. The people that need to hear out there that are worshiping a God they don't even know are dying. And God had to raise up an, uh, a guy from the Isle of Crete 
and Epimedes to come and steer them to truth. Now, there's another issue in this story before we move on. That's that from the time Epimedes showed up in 600 B.C. till the time Paul showed up in somewhere between 0 and 180, some 600 years later, some things had happened. See, when such a long time goes by between moments of destiny and then God uh, bringing somebody to explain the truth to you, altars fall into disrepair. You know, this altar to an unknown God that was there, Agnostothea, at one time there were many altars all over the hillside, everywhere one of those choice rams laid down, and they killed them. But over time, as the centuries passed, they fell into disrepair. See, this means that the church of God, when God speaks to you, you cannot delay. Because the longer you delay, the more disrepair the altar in their hearts happens. See, if, if Paul had shown up and he wasn't alive yet, if somebody from the Jewish nation had shown up the day after this happened, all of Athens would have been converted. But because it was 600 years, we're going to find out only a few get converted. So, well, why on earth are we going through all of this? Here it is. And we're going to look at some other examples in the Word. It's not just for missions that I'm talking about. You know, the obvious story from this is that in every culture, God has done something that you can key on to share the gospel with. But what I wanted to look at is within us. Every event of your life, even a famine, even some stranger speaking to you words that you have no reason to believe, whatever it may be, is an event that God intended to form and shape you. See, if He can keep you alive in a famine, what would have happened if there was no famine? Then there would have been no altar. If there was no altar, there would have been nothing for Paul to comment on when he was there. What if Paul had not been beat up and stoned in the previous few chapters? He may never have gone to Acts. Each event, no matter how seemingly good or bad it is, works together, Romans 8.28 says, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So when you say, why would God let such and such happen to me? Perhaps He's using it to nudge you to move you, to form you, to get you where you're supposed to be. If you still have trouble with that kind of thought, let's finish this. Starting back in verse 23. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by hands. And He is not served by human hands as if He needs anything. Because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man He made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. Get this and you ought to underline it in your Bible. And He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. That we are His offspring? Do you know who said that? Well, there's one of their own poets, right? It's Epimedes. Paul knew the story of Epimedes. He even quotes Epimedes here. The whole point here is he's saying, guys, 
Just like in the times past where God allowed a famine then sent somebody to tell you how to get the famine off of your land. He sent me today to tell you about the God that is above all the gods. He said, in fact, He determined boundaries for you. He determined the exact places you would live so that you would reach out and find. Now, let's take that into our lives. Do you think that you chose to live on the western bank of the Mississippi in Louisiana? You think that you chose to live on the eastern bank of the Mississippi River in Louisiana? You know, that was a barrier that was almost uncrossable for a long time. How about the Atchafalaya Basin? I'm talking to people that are mostly familiar with Louisiana. Lafayette developed independently of Baton Rouge because there was a natural barrier that God had caused to be there. In fact, our civilization that began in what we call the Western civilization really was on the eastern side of the Atlantic, not the west. But at some point, somebody looked out there at that barrier, felt inspired by God to see if it ended. And people began to cross those barriers. But it was at an exact time that God had determined so that people who lived in that place could reach out and find Him, though He's not far away. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Not, not the big global mission. I'm trying to say that in your life, you live next to the people that you live next to for a reason. God determined it. You work where you work for a reason. There are certain barriers in your life that you can kick against and be mad about. I can't seem to make more than $10,000. I can't seem to advance in my company. There are barriers in your life for a reason. There are problems in your life for a reason. You say, oh, well, the God I serve is a good God. He only desires to bless me. He never desires for there to be adversity in my life. I mean, there's a whole group of people out there that are teaching that. Every time you turn on the TV, you hear God wants you rich. He wants you in a Learjet. He wants you in a limo. How silly would that be? Who could relate to that that's lost? You know where God wants you. Read Psalm 91. God wants you in the center of Hurricane Francis so that when all the people around you are suffering, they can see that you have peace. So that they can see that you unselfishly share what you have with them. That's prosperity. Not that you have so much that it's easy for you to do, but that you'll give your widow's might. He's like, well, Eric, I'm still not quite convinced. Well, turn with me to 1 Samuel. We're going to read about a beautiful woman of God who some things happened from God in her life that we would call the devil. You know? How many of you in here have children? I think everybody in here, well, almost everybody in here has children. You know, when a woman tries to have a baby and can't, it, it's a traumatic event. You know, people, some people never recover from that. I, I work with some people that that is such a stumbling block in their life, they feel like God's failing them. Okay, and, and that's not uncommon at all. You lose a child and it leaves a mark on your heart. You say, well, that's the devil. It's, it's the devil. Well, you know, you would think a famine's the devil too. And he, here's where this gets kind of gray theologically. And, I, and I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge that. The famine that happened in Athens, do you all remember the story? Why did it happen? It happened because Megacles killed the followers of Cylon. So it happened as the result of sin. But... Everybody who died in the famine, did they participate in that sin? No, I'm sure mamas and babies had nothing to do with that, but they died in the famine as the result of sin. So did God bring the famine? He certainly allowed the famine and used it as a tool. So not everything that happens to you is the result of your sin. It's the result of sin in the world. But God will use every negative thing that happens in your life for something good. Y'all in 1 Samuel? 
I got to get there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And Ruth, and then 1 Samuel 1. What's the book of Samuel about? Samuel. <laughs> Not a trick question. Anybody remember Samuel's mother? Hannah. Did you know that Hannah was married to a man that also had another wife? Couldn't be a deacon in the Baptist church, could he? <laughs> I'm, I'm picking a little bit there, but... We sometimes frown on everything that we don't understand. Do you know that people in the Bible that were greatly used by God had more than one wife? And I'm not preaching a Mormon doctrine here. I'm just saying, how weird is that to us? And yet God used it. Watch how He uses this. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkaniah, son of Jerohim, the son of Elihu, the son of Toha, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah. The other, Peneah. Peneah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkaniah to sacrifice, he would give portions of his meat to his wife, Peneah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. (laughs) This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkaniah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now get this. This woman's in a situation where she has a rival wife. How odd is that? Women, you think you have it hard with your hard-headed husbands. What if you were competing? Now, not only are you competing... But your heart's desire is to bear a godly child because it's what was told to Adam to do. And what the promise was to Eve was she'd be the mother of all the living or the living one, the Messiah who would come through the line of women. And this is what you've grown up wanting to do. And you can't have a baby. Oh, well, that's the devil. No, who closed her womb? The Lord. Why would the Lord allow this kind of adversity in this woman's life? Why would the Lord hinder her from having a baby? Because He determined the exact times and places where we should live so that we will reach out and find Him though He's not far from us. Now, there's more problems with this story than that. Not only is she married to a man that has another wife at the same time, but this wife is prodding her and provoking her. Well, surely that's the devil. It's sin. So it's got to be the devil. No. God used this woman for a predicted outcome. You say, but God can use sin? If He couldn't use sin, we wouldn't be here. He uses imperfect people all of the time. God didn't sin. The woman's sinning. But God's going to use that for the benefit of Hannah. You say, well, how? I just don't get it. Well, there's a problem in the land because God works with nations and He works with people because they're made, they make up nations. You know what the problem in the land is at, at this time? Eli is getting old. He's the priest over the land. He's getting old and he's blind and he's fat, and which just speaks of his short-sightedness. 
The word of the Lord is rare in this time, the Bible says. And His sons are doing shameful things with women in the temple. In other words, the nation of God is not doing too well. So that's the problem on the national level. And God's watching. And He says, look, I need to fix this. I'm going to begin to work in the affairs of men because I care about them as individuals and I care about their purpose as a nation. And Hannah also has a problem. she got a rival wife that is jeering at her and she wants a baby and she can't have one. And God's working in this. You say, well, how? Well, let's see. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, Yahweh El Shaddai, if you will only look up, I'm sorry, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all of his days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. That's the shape of the priesthood. This woman is there crying out before God. And just like the non-believers on the day of Pentecost who saw people praying in other tongues and said, oh, they're drunk. This priest who is supposed to be the head of a nation, at least the mediator for the nation, sees this woman praying and says, oh, she's drunk. You remember sometimes you have to be undignified when you're seeking after God? Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. That should probably say grape juice or, you know, barley liquid or something, right? I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked Him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went on her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkaniah lay with his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Now, she had been asking for a baby and the Lord prevented it. And a rival wife kept provoking her. And what did this cause? It caused her to make a vow to God. said, Lord, if you give me the baby, I will give him back to you. How is God working in that? Well, God's working in that in this way. If she had not had trouble having a baby, she wouldn't have made the vow. It would have been a baby like any other baby raised in her house. God needed this baby to be dedicated to him. Why? Because Hophni and Phinehas were wicked. And Eli's house was coming to an end and God needed a replacement. So at the same time he was working in the event of the nation, he was working in the events of a woman's life through adversity to both bless the woman and take care of the nation. Because do you know who succeeded Eli 
And Hophni and Phinehas, a man named Samuel, who anoints the next king that God would have anointed, who anoints the second king, who led the entire nation, the last judge and the first major prophet in the Bible since Moses. See, God works in the events of man. You could, if you were hand across your arm, say, well, I want a baby and I can't have one, and be mad at God. But if your heart's right, you see that adversity and say, God, it's trying to bless me in some way. What is it that He's after? And sometimes it is the devil opposing you. Do you know when that is? That's when God tells you to do something and it's not happening and you're meeting resistance. But even if that's the case, God will use that adversity for your blessing. And we'll look at that in the next passage. See, my whole point here is not that every nation has some uh, hidden key to unlock the door to missions. My point here is not that God is... Uh, uh, like Daddy Warbucks, just raining down money, like they say on TV. My point is God works in the things that seem bad and the things that seem good because He has one undying purpose for all of the nations and all of the people. He doesn't desire that any should perish. And if the priesthood's wicked, people are going to perish. If the king is wicked, people are going to perish. If the people of God are locked up in bondage in Babylon, people are going to perish. If the servants of God sit on their salvation in a church instead of taking the church outside the walls, people are going to perish. And God has... Psalm 138.8 says that God has a plan and a purpose in your life and He will perform it. But He only performs it if you're obedient to His will. He can't, he can't perform it if you cross your arms and do nothing. See, when you look at some of the messages that we've been teaching, Ephesians 2... You're saved by grace, this not, uh, not by works so that no man can boast. But he says that you were God's craftsmanship. This is Ephesians 2, verses 9 and 10. God's craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that He prepared in advance for you to do. See, God raised up Paul for the purpose of going to Athens. And not just Athens, Paul had a lot of divine appointments along his way. He raised up Epimedes to go to this one place. He even raised up Hannah to go through some agony so that she would make a vow and produce a child that would be special and separated from, God, or separated from all of his peers as a Nazarite for all of his life. See, he will allow you to encounter things for good because Acts 17.26 says he desires that, that he sets the times and places so you'll reach out and find him. You're supposed to be finding His will. And do you remember when Paul got saved? What, what did the blinding light say to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he told him, he was, you're right, I'm sorry, I almost misquoted that. He told him he was kicking against the pricks or the goads. You know what those are? Those are the little rival wives placed in your life. Those are the famines placed in your life. Those are the adversities that are placed in your life trying to direct you into God's will. And like a spoiled brat, we cross our arms and get mad at God. Decide His kingdom doesn't work. And because the last person we prayed for didn't get out of the wheelchair, we don't pray for the next one. Because the last neighbor we talked to about Jesus turned the water hose on us, we won't talk to the next one. Because the last time we spoke up in a meeting... It didn't go well, now we're not going to. Never realizing that God's servants are born out of adversity. I have mentioned this a lot since I came back from Israel. Y'all can be turning to uh, Acts 15. 
When I was in Israel, I found out that the, the, the nation can be divided from north to south along the mountain ranges. And then, when you look at that, on the west of the mountain ranges, close to the Mediterranean Sea, are all of the really fruitful, prosperous places. On the right side are the more arid, dry places. And when you look at the cities spread out in Israel, even today, that are named biblically, you say, well, God took them to the land of milk and honey. God brought them there to bless them. Where do you think most of the cities were? Left side, which is blessing, or right side, which is arid? Well, 300 of the 350 cities mentioned in the Bible were on the right side, the arid side. Only 50 were on the blessing side. And you think God wants everybody rich? Do you think that, that He's just the bless me Santa Claus God? No, God intended for there to be great adversity in your life because that's how salvation is born in others and it's how you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If I'm only blessed and all you ever see in my life is how blessed I am, how am I different from the lost man that, that prospers because he's a friend of the world? But when you see me in adversity serving God as if I was totally blessed on every side, it makes a statement. See, everybody smiles when things are going good. But how many people smile when they just lost their job? How many people smile when they don't know how they're going to pay their electric bill because they paid somebody else's? See, that makes a statement. So God will put His people in hurricanes. He will put His people in... Uh, you know, He moved Elijah. He, he said, look, I want you to go there. And then He provided for him with ravens and everything. No sooner was Elijah getting kind of comfortable and well-fed, He dried up the, the spring. You know, why would God do that? Well, two things. He's teaching Elijah that the spring's not his source of provision. God is. And he's showing the people around, it doesn't matter where I, where I plant this particular flower. Desert or a fertile valley, it's going to bloom. You know, that, I think that was a Dylan song. Our friend Jeffrey Newman used to sing it sometimes. He said, bloom where you're planted. God can use you where you are. We spend more of our time ticked off about where we are or looking backwards. That it's difficult for God to use us. How many of you have moved from one season to another in your life and all you can do is look in the rearview mirror? Think, oh, well, I wish I was there. Or, it was so nice when we were in Egypt and we had leeks and onions. You know, there was a time in Israel's history when they were called to Egypt. They were. For 400 years, God wanted them there. He sent them there. He even made provision for them there against an entire world famine. So it's understandable that they liked it, even with the slavery. And that was okay until God said, leave there. Then He moved them on and the ones that looked back fell under a curse. Corinthians said that if you wanted to return to Egypt, you were given the opportunity. We found out that the bodies of all of those people were scattered in the desert. We serve the kind of God that has a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. And you pick up and you go where he says go. Whether it seemed good or bad, you trust that if he has a plan for the nations, he has a plan for you. And that it's going to work out according to your good. You can complain about the rival wife. You can complain about where he's moved you. All of those things. And miss the greater point. See, it took 600 years. 600 years to go from Athens... Uh, the witness of God to Athens, the Jewish apostle showing up. That's a long time. But I found out something about God. He doesn't seem to mind His name, His reputation, whatever it is being dragged through the mud for a few hundred years if it's a bigger miracle in the end. 
He promised, and I promise I'm going to go to Acts, but He promised the people of Israel, after I spread you out, He promised this in Deuteronomy, He promised it in Isaiah, He promised it in Ezekiel, He promised it in a bunch of places. After I scatter you all over the earth, I will bring you back to your land to be settled there, and you will never again be uprooted from that land, and one day you'll even be the chief among nations. Now, that was a promise from God to them. But from A.D. 70 all the way to May 14, 1948, there was no chance of that happening. Do the math on that. 1,800 and something years, God looked like a liar. Do you think His people could have gotten discouraged? And do you think that concerned God a whole lot? No, because He sees the end from the beginning. To Him, it's just a bigger miracle, a bigger testimony. The more you suffer, the more you go through adversity, the bigger testimony, the bigger miracle it is for God. The bigger witness in the earth it is. This is how you can endure sufferings with joy. How, how is it? I just watched the movie Passion of the Christ. Has anybody in here not seen it? Okay. Sometime y'all need to watch that. It's a good show. Uh, it's not 100% perfectly accurate, but it'll make a statement in your life. Okay. Just did. So here, here's the thing. When you see that, you will see a man beaten, bloody, to a pulp. Isaiah even spoke about him not being, I mean, barely being recognizable. And it's a visual image that you'll have a hard time getting away from. And the Bible says he did it for the joy set before him. You'll never convince me, not in a million years, I don't care how super spiritual you are, that uh, being hit with a cat of nine tails, hidden, there's no such word, hit with a cat of nine tails and nailed to a cross was joyful. There wasn't a joyful thing about it. It was barbarous, it was brutal. So what on earth does that mean? Jesus knew that his light and momentary troubles were not worth being compared with the glory that would be revealed in him. The problem with the saints today is that we want to wear a crown of glory. Look at me, I'm blessed, I'm wonderful. And we will not wear a crown of thorns. We serve the blessed me God only. You know, we are not willing to be humiliated that he would be glorified. We are not willing to look lesser that he might be increased. Where's the, the spirit of John the Baptist today that says, I must decrease that he might increase? Where is that? Where is the idea that a forceful man will lay hold of the kingdom? Where has that gone? Now, we, we only see ourselves as God's man of power for the hour. I'm here to heal. I'm here to do all of these things. And as long as I'm great, then I'll serve a great God. What about when God wants to humiliate you for a purpose, like closing your womb and putting you with a rival wife so that you can produce something that is awesome? How many mothers are out there that are raising Samuels and don't know it? They're complaining the whole time that they're just housewives. I don't have anything to do. God doesn't care about me. My life is absorbed in my husband's. I feel like I have no identity of my own. Man, I've been hearing that for years. And all I can, not necessarily for my wife, by the way. <laughs> and all I can think of is you could be raising the next Samuel. And you don't even know it. We need to start to bloom where we are planted. God will use that. I promise He will. Now, y'all in Acts uh, 15? Yes. I'm going to close here. I know we're going a long time. In Acts 15, we see an instance where extreme adversity, extreme adversity brought the greatest of blessings. And this was another... Do you believe that the footsteps of the righteous are ordered by God? Or is that just a song we sing? Is God truly a light under your path? I mean, if He is, if He does order those things, if He truly did set the times and places for you, then we need to act like it.
You know, if you're following Jesus, no, hey, you're following me today. We're driving to Luby's. If I'm driving and you're following me, you're not going to go anywhere I haven't gone, right? right? Yeah. So quit acting as if God is surprised about your circumstances. Quit acting as if, you know, He's unaware of it. If you're following Him, He knows right where you are. He was just there preparing the way for you. Where's the spirit of David that says, hey, man, you make a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Where is that gone? Though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, the church now says, hell no, I will not go. (laughs) I'm not going there. Just won't do it. You know, we cross our arms in disobedience and call it blessing because God would never want that stuff for us. I'm telling you, the greatest blessings in your life will come out of the most painful experiences. And if it hasn't worked that way for you, God bless you, but I've never met anybody that that's true of. You know, if my mother had not gone through a horrible, terrible, painful divorce that wrenched her heart out, and I'm not saying she was right in it. Remember, all of, everything that happens to you has something to do with either your sin or sin in the world. Okay? If that hadn't happened, she wouldn't have had one of the greatest blessings in her life. I go a step further. I wouldn't have been formed and shaped the way that I was. Which means I wouldn't be standing here preaching to you about this. God has ordered these events. If He can keep those planets not only spinning themselves, but things spinning around the planets, and then that entire group of spinning objects spinning around a sun, and then that entire group of solar systems spinning in a galaxy, spinning in a universe, I think He can work out the events of our lives. You know, He's a big, big God. Listen to this. Here's some adversity. Acts 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria, Sicilia, uh, strengthening the churches. John Mark had faced adversity and he ran away from it. And so Paul said, I'll take somebody, but I ain't taking him. I can relate to that. You know, I, I mean, I think we can all relate to that. Now later you see Paul repenting of this action. Not that it's wrong here, but later repenting in the sense that he says, bring me John Mark, he's useful. We would want to see John Mark as a failure because he quit on the missionary journey and yet later he wrote the book of Mark. So you can't sum up somebody's life by one action. But, but here's the thing. This was a sharp disagreement between two men of God. One who had been like a father to the other. You, you realize that? Barnabas taught Paul. You know that? Some, somewhere along the book of Acts, somewhere around 14, 15 or 16, I think it's 14, you see a switch occur where Paul becomes the chief speaker. And it's not to say Paul wasn't always speaking, but you see Paul going to, or Barnabas going to find Paul. You see Paul kind of taking him under his wing, introducing him to the other brothers there, vouching for him, if you will. And later, there's a switch. And Paul tends to be the most prominent figure in the relationship. And such a sharp disagreement breaks out between these two that they go their separate ways. Well, that in itself, you can see how it could be God. The blessing goes two different directions. But in Paul's life, you think that hurt? Oh, man, I, you know it. 
Anybody in here ever loved a brother and you experienced separation over a disagreement? Oh, it'll rip your heart out. Does that mean it's not God? Well, I don't know. Let's see. Who, who did he get added to him? Who replaced Barnabas? Silas. Silas was a Roman citizen like Paul. I wonder if that's important. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened and in the faith and they grew daily in number. Two people now, in addition to Luke who's writing it and always leaves himself out, are traveling with Paul. Silas, who is a Roman citizen and a Jew and a prophet, incidentally, and an apostle, incidentally, is traveling with Paul and also now a young man named Timothy, who had been uniquely prepared because his father was a Greek, uh, his mother was a Jew, his grandmother had taught him the Scriptures from the time he was young. He was willing to be circumcised, although Paul said circumcision was of no value. Why? Because of the Jews living in the area. He wanted to be a witness to them and he was willing to be hurt and to bleed personally, even though he didn't have to, for their benefit. So God is adding to Paul a, a ministry team for the purpose of reaching some people. Well, let's see who that is. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the providence of Asia. You remember he determined the times and the exact places where people should live? There's a reason some people lived on the left side of the Appalachian Mountains and others lived on the right. There's a reason that people, groups, are separated around the globe the way they are. There are times set for them. There's exact places where they're supposed to live because God has a plan He's working out for their salvation. So the Spirit of Jesus kept Him from going to Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once and left, got ready to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, here's the story. You got Paul and Barnabas splitting up. It seems like a terrible thing. Adversity wrenched out their hearts, but he adds to him Silas. A man who's a Roman citizen, a man who's a prophet and an apostle who will work beside him. He has to him Timothy, somebody who's willing to shed his blood that the gospel go out. Then they go out ready, right? In the power of the Spirit, having been sent, ready to go, anointed of God. And they're thinking, anywhere I go, God will bring the message. And the first thing that happens is God says, no, you can't go here. So then they turn another way and they say, all right, we're going to take the gospel there. And God says, no, you can't go there. This ought to do away with the idea that God can use you anywhere. Okay? It's true He can, but that's not His will. You don't decide, I'm going to go do this and then ask God to bless it. You find out what God wants of you, and then He blesses that in your life. Okay? So then Paul sees a vision. And this vision is of a man in Macedonia saying, come over here. And the Bible says they all concluded that God had called them to go. If you don't have the right people in your ministry team, and this is kind of a text that we've used for a long time 
for this ministry team. If you don't have the right people, when one man has a vision, they can't all conclude that God had called them. See, perhaps if John Mark was here, he'd go, Ooh, Macedonia? Makes me scared. You know? I mean, there's no telling. Maybe, maybe Barnabas had a bad experience in Macedonia and wouldn't want to go. And a dispute would break up. We don't know. What we do know is that God had added certain people to Paul for this, and it looked like adversity. It looked like something was wrong. You could say, man, they had a church split. You could be angry over it. But Paul has seen the vision, and they all go. Then, it says, uh, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there seven days. We're going to go on and we're going to see Lydia get saved. And then we're going to get to a place in verse 16 where they are now in Macedonia. All right? No men have been saved. Lydia got saved, but no man in Macedonia has been saved. And there's a problem with that. The problem is Paul saw a man in a vision saying, come over here. They all concluded that it was God and they went. And thus far, no men are getting saved. So in verse 16, it says, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left. When the owners of the slave girl realized their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates. These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined them in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. Okay, now for a minute, take this out of the book. Okay, quit reading about a story that happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and think about it as your friends. I come to you and I say, hey guys, I saw a vision. God has called us to go to West Texas to preach the gospel. And I saw a man in the vision saying, come over here. So all of us get together in the family station wagon, the family truckster, we set out for West Texas. We work there for some period of months and nobody's getting saved. One girl gets saved, we get excited about that. And then uh, some demon keeps bothering us and so uh, one of us casts out the demon and we get stripped and beaten because of that. How are you feeling about this mission at this point? You think, maybe Eric didn't hear from God? You think, oh, what? God would never. God wouldn't waste our time. We we should have... Can you think you might be complaining? Stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer commanded the guard to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in an inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. If you weren't complaining about being put naked and beaten, are you complaining now? Because God would never do this to you, right? God would never allow you to be stripped and beaten. God would never allow you to be put in stocks and then intercept, would He? I mean, surely, surely Paul didn't hear from God about this. Suddenly, I'm sorry, about midnight, this verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What were they doing? 
They were praying and singing hymns to God. You think you had to have a special group of people to be stripped, beaten, chained in an inner cell in stocks and be singing hymns to God at midnight? Friends, what will you be doing tonight at midnight? You know? How many times has God asked you to pray and you couldn't even roll out of bed? How many church services did you miss because it wasn't convenient? You know? I mean, think about that. They were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all of the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs... What must I do to be saved? And there's a big, beautiful story here, and we're out of time, so I'm going to sum it up for you. It was adversity that they were called in. I mean, a fight between Barnabas and Paul. But God added people to Paul. That when Paul had a vision to go, even though they faced tremendous adversity, stripped, beaten, chained in an inner cell, and in stocks, that they would be the kind of men that would sing at midnight because God knew... All of the prisoners were listening. And not just the prisoners, but when God decided to intervene and the earthquake occurred, a jailer had the sentence of death in his heart. And Paul said, don't kill yourself. And he said, what must I do to be saved? You know where they are? They're in Macedonia. This is the first Macedonian man to get saved. He's the man that Paul saw in the vision saying, come over here and tell us what we must do to be saved. See, God has ordained events to happen. But you have to be willing to go through adversity to get to the blessing. You have to be willing to be stripped. You need to learn to look at everything that happens in your life as one more nudge, one more prod to get you into the right place. Because even though you're taking a beating, it might be for a Macedonian man to get saved. You would have never thought that. If you didn't know how this story ended, you would have never thought that the man in the vision was the jailer. And that God would allow His precious, special apostles to go through all of that trouble to get somebody saved. He allowed His Son to be killed before the whole world to get saved. Why are we so special? We call ourselves Christians, little Christ. That means you would endure everything that Christ would for God's will. What separated Jesus from every other man is is the prayer. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours. Jesus said that He went to the cross and the prince of this world was coming. He had no hold on Him. But he, the world had to learn that He loved the Father and did exactly what was commanded. Here's the message in a nutshell. Your obedience is never tested. Never. Until you're told to do something you don't want to do. The only reason the world learned that Jesus loved the Father and did exactly what He was commanded is because it's something nobody would willingly do. If I tell Judy to eat ice cream, it's not a real test of his obedience. If I tell him to eat spinach or lima beans or something, it might be a test of disobedience. See, God has a plan for the nations. He has a plan for your life and it involves the people around you. And your obedience is essential and it will require adversity for others to be blessed. That's just a part of the program. And as long as the church of God pansies out and won't do what they're told to do, then the work of God suffers just like the people dying in the famine because there was no Jewish apostle to go there because they were in captivity for sin. You know, 
But God is faithful to raise up people to perform His, His calling. I'm hoping that that's people here and here. I'm hoping that you'll say, here I am, Lord use me, just like Isaiah did. I'm hoping that like Samuel, when you hear the voice calling, you'll say, here I am, Lord. That's what I'm hoping. And I'm hoping that when you come into contact with the diversity, you can see it as blessing because that's the way God's kingdom has always progressed. Stand up your feet. Let's pray. Let's pray that this be so. You know, when you say the words, uh, Amen, we, we think it's just like a, you know, best regards kind of ending. No, amen means so be it unto God. So when you pray something and everybody says, Amen, what you're saying is let it be done this way to me. You know, so be it unto me. So be it unto God. We're agreeing on this, Lord. This is what we want. Now, don't you dare say amen to what I'm about to pray if you don't mean it. You know? You know, it's kind of like we, we stand up and sing this joy that I've got and then you walk off, ticked off. Well, what's wrong with that picture? Okay, we're, we're going to pray and we're going to pray that God do whatever it takes in our lives to reach other people because that's what God's about. We're going to pray that we're willing to be used of God, whatever that means. And if you can't say amen to that, you need to evaluate whether or not you're a Christian, number one. And number two, how long you plan to be a Christian if you are now. You know? Okay, let's pray.